How great is our God? I did not ask him to lead that song, but I'm grateful that he did. I hope that by the time we get done with this morning's lesson, you might have a new appreciation or a deeper appreciation and understanding of how great our God is. As you study through the sermons and the different books of the Bible, you will discover that many of those sermons and many of those books in the Bible have one intended central theme or message that they are trying to address or to put across. And that everything else in those books, or particularly some of the sermons in those books, is just a further illustration or application or explanation of that, that one theme that they're trying to get across. Many commentaries that you check will often have a breakdown or outline in the front of them that will include the theme of the book. As you go through resource materials, some of them will summarize it and say the theme of this book is, for example, we're studying Colossians on Wednesday night in our adult Bible class, and in Brother Lonnie Ritchie's commentary on Colossians, right in the very introduction of the book, he actually has a section entitled, The Theme so that you don't miss it, and, and this is what he says. The theme of this book, that is Colossians, is Christ supreme over all. The following verses are the key ones that emphasize this theme. Colossians 1.18, 2.9, and 3.11. This letter, perhaps more than any other New Testament document, sets forth the glory of Christ. So whenever we need to be reminded of how supreme and preeminent Christ is over everyone and everything else in the universe, this is certainly the New Testament book we need to read. A lot of church resources and commentaries will do that, but it's not only the uninspired resources that we have available to us that do that, because the themes of many books and sermons in the inspired text, in the Bible, will also show us their theme very easily when we stop and think about it. For example, and we talked about this at length when we covered the Sermon on the Mount, the theme verse of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 and verse 20. Jesus said, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall by no means enter into the kingdom. If you study the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you'll see that everything that Jesus says prior to Matthew 5 and verse 20, he's leading up to how your righteousness has got to be from the inside out. It's got to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees on many levels. And, and that's what leads him from the very beginning in Matthew 5 up to that pinnacle theme verse of Matthew 5, 20. And then everything after Matthew 5, 20 is pretty much an explanation of how your righteousness has got to be greater than theirs. Don't, don't stand in public praying out loud. Don't do your good deeds before people. All of those sorts of things. But, but the theme of the Sermon on the Mount could be pretty easily seen to be Matthew 5 and verse 20. There are other books in the New Testament that make it very easy to know the theme because they come right out and tell you. For example, the Gospel according to John John spells out his theme for you. Everything his book is about, everything, in just a few sentences. In John 20, verses 30 and 31, John said, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, 
but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John says, this is the reason I wrote it. So you believe in Jesus. And if you go back and look through the gospel according to John, it's easy to see when we talk about Nicodemus or the woman at the well or the boy born blind. As you, as you study those stories, how those people came to believe more in Jesus. And when you, when you look at some of the miracles in the book, like in John chapter 2, the, the turning of the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. As you look at some of the miracles, again, like the boy born blind that, that Jesus healed or, or Lazarus raised from the dead, all of those in John are meant to bring us to understand his theme. I wrote these so you'd believe. So that's the way it works a lot in the scriptures. Speaking of the Apostle John, I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 John. If you're unfamiliar with where that is, perhaps it's you go up to the back of the Bible in Revelation and you back up a few books and you come to a little tiny one, 1 John, about five chapters long, right up there near the back. Speaking of the Apostle John, if, if you were to read through the book of 1 John, this 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, if you were to read through the book of 1 John, it was written at a time where it was written, it is believed, to address the Gnostic heresy that was going on at that time in history. And so if you read through it, you can see John's theme easily emphasized. Gnostics believed that they had knowledge above and beyond that of normal Christians, that they got knowledge from another place and, and that that made them somehow superior and you needed to listen to them, how they, they just knew more about about it than just what Christ had revealed. And so John writing at that time, you can see throughout his book, John saying they're wrong. We know God because we follow the scriptures is the, is the basic. We know God. He, he tells you several ways that we know God. That we common Christians, if you want to use that terminology, which I don't like, because I think every Christian is way above common. They are saved by the blood of Christ, and that makes them something special, not because of them, but him. But anyway, different sermon. As you read through 1 John, you can see that false teachers had begun to trouble the church. 1 John chapter, and if you're taking notes, it would be easier than just turning to these now, because I'm going to go fairly fast, not give you a chance to read them. It is obvious that false teachers had begun to trouble the brethren. We see that in 1 John 2 and verse 26, chapter 3 and verse 7, and chapter 4 and verse 1. These were apparently, apparently, apostate or fallen away, formerly faithful brethren. 1 John 2 and verse 19. It is believed that some of these formerly faithful brethren, Christians, had become Gnostics, that they had come to believe that they possessed a greater or more superior knowledge than that possessed by the rest of the congregation, than that possessed by quote-unquote ordinary Christians, that somehow they had this superior knowledge from another place, as I said. Hence John's theme. John's theme, but we know. And John's whole writing is about not only do we know, but how we know. Did you know that in the little book of 1 John, the word know is used 35, uh, 32 times in five chapters? 32 times in five chapters in 1 John 
John uses the word know. We can know. We don't need that anything else. We got, we got all, of this, all of this revelation from God. We know. We know, we know, we know, we know. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5, you'll see his theme. You'll see his theme verses. And it's very similar to what occurs in the Gospel of John. You know, in the Gospel of John where he said, These things I have written to you so that you may believe? He uses very similar phraseology here in 1 John 5, 11 through 13. This is his theme. 1 John 5, 11. This is the testimony that God has given us. This is not a future thing. He has given. God's taken care of this. He has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. You've got to be in Christ in order to have eternal life. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now here it comes. These things I have written to you. Sound familiar? These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, here it comes, that you may know that you have eternal life. Here's John's theme. He said, the whole reason I'm writing these five chapters to you is so that you, without all of that Gnostic false teaching and ridiculousness that they got from other places, I've written it so that you can know that you have eternal life. The Christian who is following God, the Christian who is walking in the light, the Christian who has had their sins forgiven in baptism, needs to know that they have eternal life. There's nothing any more powerless than a Christian who is, who is in Christ, who has been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, who's walking in the light, who's studying and learning and growing and confessing their sins and being cleansed by the blood, for you to ask them, are you going to heaven? And them to say, I really don't know. These things are written that you may know. Folks, if you don't know you're going to heaven, how can you share your hope with somebody else? Because you don't have one. He said, this is the reason I wrote to you, so that you'd know that you have eternal life. And he continues down in verses 19 and 20 of 1 John 5. He says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. John says we know. How do we know? We know because we're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you can't know, but if you're in Christ, you know. So, if you look back in 1 John 1, John begins that theme, that's the theme of his whole book, but he begins that theme with how we know that we are in fellowship with the Father, how we know that we're, we're saved. And, and he talks about that having to do with our fellowship with God and being in fellowship with him in John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2 and verse 2. We know that we are in Christ and saved if we know we are in fellowship with the Father according to the instruction there in 1 John 1, 1 through 2, 2. He continues with how we know we are in him if we keep his commandments. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. If we keep his commandments, we know. And that especially and specifically when it comes to our truly, sincerely, righteously, and selflessly loving one another. 
We know that we know him if we keep his commandments, chapter 2, verses 3 through 8, and that is especially when it comes to loving, we can know because we love one another with a godly love. Verses 9 through 11 of chapter 2, as well as all of chapter 3 and 4, is devoted to this. Keeping his commandments, one of the main ones of which is to love one another. He spends a couple of chapters telling us that. I want you to take a look at, at this with me in chapters 3 and 4 from a couple of places. Begin with me in chapter 3 and verse 10. This is how we can know. One way we can know, if we're in him, let these words sink into your heart. In this, 1 John 3.10, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or made known. He said, here it is, here's the litmus test. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. This is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. How important is it? It's eternal life and death important. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know, there's another occurrence of that word, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This isn't a new teaching. John sat there that night. John, John sat there in, in John 13 when, when Jesus got up and girded himself with a towel and got down and washed the disciples' feet when he washed John's own feet. John sat there while Jesus, the Son of God, washed his feet in John 13. And, and he watched Jesus wash Peter's feet. He saw Jesus wash Judas' feet. Judas' feet that would soon run to betray him. And as John sat there that night, Jesus would say to his disciples later on in, in John, the gospel according to John chapter 13, 34, and 5, by this the world will know that you are my disciples if, if you have love for one another. Jesus already told them that's going to be the mark. If you love one another. Not just what the world calls love. But love as God defines it in 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 16 of 1 John 3 says this. How do we know what real love looks like? I mean, people today, you throw that word around like I, it's awful, okay? How do we know? Verse 16 of 1 John 3. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's how we know what real love is. Real love says that I will take care of your needs even if it hurts. That's how we know. That's what Jesus did. Real, you know, we're not really literally going to be called on to lay down our life on a wooden cross for one another. But you know what? We are often called upon to lay down or put off, as the Apostle Paul put it in places like Galatians 5.20 and Colossians 3.8-14, we're often called to lay down or put off such things as anger, 
wrath, lies, malice, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, filthy language, unforgiveness, and other things. We're called to lay down our lives in that respect, to put those down. Sometimes it's easy for us to be angry with each other. Got to lay it down. Verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Real, biblical, God-imitating love is not just something you say. But it is something shown or exhibited. It is something shown or exhibited with both action and attitude. Love is not just something you say and then fail to display. Keep that in mind. It's not just something you say and then fail to display. God didn't do that, did he? God, what does Romans tell us? God demonstrates his love for us in that yet while we were still sinners, Christ did what? Died for us. God didn't just say, I love you, good luck. God didn't just say, I love you. Boy, life's tough down there. I'm glad I'm not there. God didn't just say, I love you, but if you expect me to get involved in that mess, that ain't going to happen. What did he, he do? Again, love that imitates God in Christ is one that demonstrates itself in action. Again, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That word demonstrates there in the, in the Greek means to show, to prove, to establish, to exhibit. Don't just... Tell me you love me if you won't show me you love me. With a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love is kind of the message that John is putting out here. Christ imitating love demonstrates itself as we read about in James 2, 14 through 17. Faith without works is dead. Don't just tell me if I'm starving that you're really sorry for me. It must be bad to have my stomach growl that bad and walk away. That's not love. Not at all. Look at verse 23 of 1 John 3. And this is his commandment, commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. We say, oh, that first one is so important. Brethren, they're linked by the word and. They're both of equal value. We have, to, uh, we have this commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. The two are inseparable. Listen, does true belief in Jesus Christ require baptism for the forgiveness of sins? Yes or no? Yes, it does. True faith in Jesus Christ demands biblical baptism because he's Lord and to love him is to obey his commandments. But true belief in Jesus Christ, it is just as important that we love one another. It is just as essential that we love one another because that's what the text says. Both of those are just as important. Love Jesus, got to be baptized. Love Jesus, got to love one another. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look how clear it's not an option. 
is not baptism's not optional. Loving your brother is not optional. Look at how clear he makes this point in 1 John 4, beginning at verse 7. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Obviously, that means with a godly love and not the way the world uses the term today. Verse 8, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. That's what God is. God is a spirit. God is the spirit of love. And you can't say that you love God. You can't say you love the spirit of love if you don't show love. Because you don't love the spirit of love. That's his point. In this, the love of God was made known toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. He said, here's the definition again. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There is an uninspired tradition, it is not Bible, I clarify that right up front, but there is an uninspired historic tradition that says, throw it out if you want to, it's not what the Bible says, but that claims that the Apostle John in his old age, when he got so feeble that he could not stand, he would have others help him to the assembly of the saints on Sunday. And in a voice that was so feeble because it was, because, all, because it was all that he could manage at his old age, would simply repeat over and over, little children, love one another. And so my question is, and, and what serves as the title for this morning's lesson, my question is this. What on earth happened to John? That's the question. That's not, what on earth happened to John? And, and the reason that I ask that is because this, what we've read in 1 John is not the same John that we see in the Gospels. All of this, love your brother and Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to do it. For, it's beautiful stuff and it's great stuff. But this ain't the same John we see in the Gospels. What on earth happened to John? Let me give you some examples. In Mark chapter 3, in verse 17, Jesus gives this John, as well as his brother James, the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Strong's outline of biblical uses, usage says that that Greek term, Boanerges, means, listen to this, it seems to denote fiery and destructive zeal that may be likened to a thunderstorm, destructive zeal that might be likened to this, this Terrible storm with lightning and thunder and destruction. That's the name Jesus gave them. We see this, this fiery and destructive zeal, certainly a lack of love, a lack of mercy, and a lack of compassion on full display in John in Luke chapter 9. Turn there with me. This is amazing. The guy who wrote all of this stuff, stuff up here in 1 John about love, he was anything but. 
He was a son of thunder. He was given to fiery and destructive zeal when it came to other people. Jesus and his disciples are passing through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem, and I want to pick up here in Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 49. Luke 9 and verse 49. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. There was a man casting out demons who wasn't in their immediate company. This text is not a justification for denominationalism, okay? It's not what he's talking about. But there's somebody that's not in their little group, their little physical group right there following Jesus. And, and John sees him cast out, and we forbade him. Jesus said, no, 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 no. This John who forbade him. Sounds a little different than that John in 1 John 3 and 4, doesn't it? He's a, it may be the same guy, but it ain't the same guy. It gets worse. Look at me in verses 51 and following. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him, that is Jesus, to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they, that is, those Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set on the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them like Elijah did? Lord, do you want us to kill them? You want us to destroy them? That's what John asks. Wow, John, really? <laughs> Call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Obviously, he's referencing what Elijah did with Ahaziah's men in 2 Kings 1, 10 through 12. You know, this is the Apostle John that we see in the Gospels, one who is ready to kill. Don't get the wrong idea here. When he says, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them, he is talking about killing people. Destroying them. Don't, don't sugarcoat it, pasteurize it, glaze it over. That's what he's saying. But Jesus turned, verse 55, and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they, they went to another village. John, in the Gospels, was ready to kill people who disagreed with his religious convictions. People who didn't respect Jesus the way he did. And he's ready to kill them. And it wasn't only complete strangers that he and his brother were willing to look down on or show no love to. He and his brother, it wasn't just total strangers like these Samaritans. He and his brother were willing to look down and show no love on their closest friends, their co-workers, 
members of their own little religious fellowship group. John was willing to go after them as well. He wasn't very loving. Mark 10, please turn there, beginning at verse 35. Mark 10, verse 35. Then James and John, here we go with John again. The sons of Zebedee, Mark 10 and verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, now there's some love-motivated stuff. Jesus, we want you to take care of us first. Really, John? Uh-huh. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand, the other on your left, in your glory. Give us the places of honor. We deserve it. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you asked. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we're able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. I wonder why. Here's the whole group. They're all working with Jesus. They're all serving Jesus. They're all hearing the same lessons. And you got two out of the twelve of them. They go to Jesus and they say, hey, may I paraphrase? We're the best you got. We want the place of honor. We don't care about these other guys. We'll stab them in the back, climb over the corporate ladder. I'm illustrating. The ten were indignant, another gospel says, with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be a servant. John, you want to be great? You want to be deserving of the best place? Then you be the best servant you can be. You don't get it by climbing over everybody else. You get it by serving. You serve from your knees, John. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be last, shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Didn't come to be served, but to serve. To serve the Judases of the world? Uh-huh. To serve the Saul of Tarsuses of the world? Uh-huh. To serve the Doug Dingleys of the world? Certainly, as we read through these accounts in the Gospels, this is not the same Apostle John that we see who wrote telling us in 1 John how the only way that we can truly know God is to keep his commandments and to love one another. The John who in 1 John goes through so much time in text telling us how true love that truly helps us to know we're obeying the commands of God is when we lay down our lives for one another. This ain't the same John, and yet it's the same John. He may be the same individual, but he's certainly not the same person. And so, once again, the title of this lesson and the question I ask, what on earth happened to John? What on earth 
possibly had the power to change John from a son of thunder to the apostle of love that we see in 1 John? And the answer is so incredibly, incredibly profound and simple and beautiful and, and, and infinitely insightful. It, it is so compelling and yet it is so incredible. What on earth happened to John between the John of the Gospels who wanted to kill people and climb over people and have the first place to, to the John who says, we gotta lay down our lives for one another. That's real love. Well, what, what was the difference maker? The answer is simple. There was only one event that happened between those two things that could have that kind of power. The division, the difference maker, the life-altering event between the John of the Gospels and the John of his later epistles is John coming face to face with the full reality of the full love of God for him and for all mankind at the cross. That's the dividing line. When John came face to face with the incredible love of God for him and for all of humanity at the cross that Friday, that's the difference. Night that Jesus was betrayed, John fled along with all of the other disciples when Jesus was arrested. But yet he and Peter returned that night to the courtyard of the high priest to see what was going to happen to Jesus. We read this in John chapter 18, verses 15 and 16. Later on that night, early that morning, Peter, after the rooster crowed, after his denials, Peter left again. He went outside and, and he wept bitterly. He, he leaves the premises again, Matthew 26, 75, Luke 22, 62. But it would appear from the gospel accounts that John stayed. We know that because we see him later on that same day at the cross. You recall the interchange, uh, the exchange between Jesus and him where he said, you know, woman behold your son, son behold your mother. John was still at the cross that next day. So even though they'd all fled that night and then Peter and John come back to the courtyard and Peter later leaves, we don't see John leaving again. And if, if, if John didn't leave, and the Bible doesn't say he did or didn't, but if he didn't, because he was there again later on, John 19, 26 and 7, at the cross that day, John was there, Bible tells us, if, if, if he didn't go during all that time, I want you to think about what John heard and saw and experienced on more of a first-hand basis than those who fled. I, I want you to think about that dividing line, what John saw. John may very well have been exposed to at least bits and pieces of what Jesus looked like after that horrendous beating and scourging that he took. That horrendous scourging and that beating that Jesus had the power to stop but didn't because he loved us all so much. John likely, we know John was at the cross, scripture says, and, and, and the only way that he got there was probably by following the mob out through, and so can you imagine John 
very likely also saw Jesus that morning so bloody and so opened up that he couldn't carry his own cross and, and he stumbles and Simon of Cyrene is, is brought in to carry his cross and this poor man can't hardly get up. He does, we know he gets up, but he can't carry his cross anymore. And if you're John and you followed him all that time and you see that, John is likely to have seen Jesus during that procession addressed the daughters of Jerusalem when Jesus said through bloody lips, don't, don't cry for me, cry for yourselves. If they're doing this to me, what are they going to do to you? Paraphrasing. John, we know he was at the cross. Probably heard that ping. Spikes went into Jesus. He may very well have at least seen, if not heard, portions of Christ's conversation with the thief. And more than anything, perhaps, heard his Savior with his last few breaths pray for the forgiveness of those who put him on the cross. Father, Father, please forgive them. They know not what they do. And I don't believe for a minute Jesus said that like I just did. Every, every breath, every word, a struggle. Jesus prayed even for those who put him on that cross, who drove those nails. Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then, three days later, John was there and saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. He saw and heard Jesus explaining that the whole reason that Jesus went through all of those things is because of his great and undying love for sinners. The reason Jesus explained that the reason he went through all of those things was because of his undying love for lost sinners and his all-consuming desire to provide them with full, free, and total forgiveness. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 47. Brethren, that'll change a person. That'll change a person. <coughs> That will change. You, 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 you go through what John did and some of the things that he likely saw as Jesus died to provide full forgiveness for even those who nailed him to the cross. That'll change a person. It'll change how a person sees and treats other people. It'll change how a person sees and treats other people who are as imperfect and flawless as they themselves are. It will change how a person reacts to somebody who is different from or disagrees with them. It will change how a person reacts to adversity. When they look at their own adversity and they see somebody else who has escaped that adversity completely. It'll change a person. Sure changed John. It changed him from a son of thunder 
into one commonly referred to as the Apostle of Love. You know, one of the reasons we know that John never got over the love of God and, and how, how impactful that was to him being there, you can prove it to yourself from now on. Every time you read through the Gospel of John from now on, every time, Notice specifically the phrase John uses when he refers to himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Multiple times John uses that. It wasn't that Jesus didn't love the other disciples. It wasn't that Jesus didn't love Peter and Andrew and the rest of them. But John, the fact that God loved him, that God would go through that for him, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved because it just made such an impact on him that, that God loved him that much. It wasn't that he didn't love anybody else, but that love for him and that, that love for us ought to change us. Now, don't get me wrong. It wasn't that John, after the cross, didn't have the opportunity to respond to people just as harshly and just as critically, and just as negatively, and just as selfishly, and just as unlovingly as he had earlier. He had other opportunities. It's just that he was a changed man because the cross changed him. For example, Acts chapter 8. I'm not going to turn there. You can if you want. Earlier, we read it, Luke 9. James and John ready to call fire down on the Samaritans. Let's cook them, Lord. Let's destroy them. Acts chapter 8, we see John preaching the life-saving gospel to the Samaritans. The Samaritans trying to save the souls of those same Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 and verse 25. You can read it for yourself. It's what the Bible says. Do you see how that being at the cross that morning changed him? Seeing that love that God had for us all. made him a whole different person. That'll change a person, being at the cross. In Acts chapter 12, 1 through 2, we see him lose his older brother, John. Uh, John loses lose his brother, James, supposed to be or believed to be his older brother, but we see John lose his brother, James, to King Herod's sword. Then Peter's immediately arrested, and they're going to do the same thing to Peter. King Herod's going to do the same thing to Peter, or thinks he is that was done to John's brother James. But Peter somehow, because of the prayers of the church, Peter escapes the sword. And you know, it would be easy for somebody to look at that and say, wait a minute, my brother died. My God, why didn't you rescue my brother? My brother died right there, and yet you rescued Peter. What was the matter with my, it would be real easy for some of us to be tempted to say something like that, to blame God. Especially if you were like John and as fiery and full of destructive zeal as the John of the Gospels, but John doesn't do that. And finally, in the Great Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, we don't see John standing up and demanding his own way or place or perspective at the cost or destruction of others as he had been prone to do earlier. We don't see that in the Jerusalem Council. In fact, this is interesting. If you read through the Jerusalem Council and all these church leaders in Acts 15, you don't see a whisper of John. You don't even know he's there. You know how you know he's there? Because over in Galatians, it tells us he was there. In Galatians 2 and verse 9, it tells us he was there. 
In Galatians 2.9, we find out that he was willing to humbly go along with the dual action plan the church leaders had put forth. Talk about a changed man. Back in the Gospels, we got him wanting the top spot, he and his brother. We got him ready to kill people. And yet, by the time of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, we don't even know he's there. He's just there, Galatians 2.9. And, and he's good with whatever the church leaders have decided. This wasn't a man who needed priority first place anymore because why? Because that dividing line, that place that he had been, he had seen the God in the flesh not have to be number one. He'd seen God in the flesh humbly submit to what men would do to him pray for their forgiveness. The cross will change a person. This wasn't the same man that we see pre-Calvary. This was a man now who was changed. A man to whom the love for, service to, and forgiveness of all other men and women now meant everything. You know, why, you know why love and service and forgiveness meant everything to the John who wrote 1 John? You know why? Because he'd seen it in action at Calvary. That'll change a person. That'll change a person. You see, it is truly impossible to love others the way God loves and wants us to until and unless we have come face to face and heart to heart with the love of God that Christ showed us at the cross. It is nearly impossible as well to finally come face to face with and understand the true depth of the love God showed us at the cross and then not be changed in the way we love and treat others even others who hurt us, desert us, disagree with us, or even despise us. You know, maybe that's one more reason why God in his all-knowing wisdom gave us this. Maybe that's one more reason why God in his all-knowing wisdom gave us this celebration on the first day of every week for his disciples to do this in remembrance of what Jesus did for us to remind us of his great love, to remind us of his great grace, to remind us of his great forgiveness he had for us so that we can then go out and show that same love and grace and mercy and forgiveness to somebody else that week. Just a moment. We're going to partake of communion. We're going to do this in remembrance of him. We, we can't be at the cross today. The cross was 2,000 years ago. We can't hear this. We can't see the blood flow into the dirt. But we can go to the cross here, and that's what we're called to do. So as we take communion in a few minutes, in a minute or two, I want you to make every effort to look deeply into the Savior's heart, and soul, and mind, and eyes. I want you to make eye contact with Christ on that cross. I want us to see and stand at the foot of his cross and take it all in. 
I want us all to look deeper than we have ever looked before to see the reason, to see our own reflection, to see our own damnation, and to see his blood-bought salvation. I want us to see the great love and mercy and forgiveness and humility that Christ the Savior was literally dying to give you and me. And as a result of that, I want us to then determine to go from this place this morning at the foot of the cross, to die to ourselves as never before, and go out and share that love and grace and mercy and forgiveness we've been given to become that changed person just like John did, and it all changed at the cross. For in this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, so ought we also to love one another.